Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A fresh pair of eyes can seem miraculous. You're bogged down in your situation, doing your best to deal with it, and an outsider with a different perspective provides the key insight that changes everything. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Exodus, Provision in the Wilderness, with this sermon entitled The Lord Our Wisdom which covers Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray, thank the Lord for these things, and then we'll jump into Exodus. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the ways in which you are at work. Even when we can't see it, we thank you. And we thank you for the, the transforming work of Jesus and all the ways in which that is manifested in our lives and in the world around us. Lord, we pray now that as we open the word of God, would you remind us that this is the living, breathing word of God from you, breathe through um, inspired authors that you use to write these words down to our benefit. And so would they indeed benefit benefit us this morning? We thank you that you promise us that your word does not return void, that it pierces between Uh, both joint and marrow, sharper than any double-edged sword. So may it be sharp this morning. Would it pierce our hearts in a magnificent way? Would you draw us into yourself? And would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have seen one of these stickers on something you've bought? Big box? Team lift. I call this a wisdom sticker. So suggestion, hey, by the way, it's also a don't sue me sticker in case you do try to lift it by yourself. But it's a wisdom sticker for us. It's a, it's a wise suggestion. Hey, this is a heavy thing in here and you're gonna want someone to help you with this. Now, I don't know if it's just a me thing or if it's a male thing or if it's just a human nature thing, regardless of gender, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I just know my propensity is this. When I see that sticker, I see it as a challenge. Oh, Really? Team lift, you say. Uh, Okay, let me see if I can get this. I'm gonna prove I'm wrong. And typically, almost every time I try to lift it by myself, it ends up in one of two realities. One, it is far too heavy for me and I have to swallow my pride and ask someone to help me. Or it's not too heavy for me, but it is heavy enough to where I injure myself. I strain my back, something happens, and I I have this uh, combo of my pride has been justified, and I say, but I did it. And then the logic comes right behind that and says, yeah, but you're an idiot. You did it, but why did you have to prove that to no one? To no one, just yourself. Well done, Jeff, you should be proud. It's a wisdom sticker. Right? And, and it makes me think each time we've ordered something that's heavy, whatever, and, and I see that sticker on there, there have been many times where I sense that the Lord is saying, hey, there's a lot of wisdom stickers in your life that you ignore. It's not just this one. There's a lot of them. And the reason that, that I do that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just guess that you're with me in this and that you feel this with me, which is to say that we, we all have a propensity to ignore the wisdom stickers in our life, the things that God gives us that he says, hey, this is wisdom. And we just go, nah, no, nah, that's all right. I got it. 
And the reason we do that is a part of the fall. It's a part of the sin nature within us. And, but what's happened ever since Genesis 3 is we are a people who think we've got it. We are a people who just naturally think we are wise. You know, I, I'm wise. I, you don't have to help me. I, I've, I've got it. I mean, think about the very origin of sin itself. In some respect, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They, they knew the wisdom of God, and the wisdom of God was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what did they say? They said, we're going to take what was actually foolishness from the serpent and consider it wisdom. And so they bought this phony wisdom, and they rejected the wisdom of God. We do that because it's just, it's just who we are. It's our nature. We do it sometimes just out of sheer ignorance, not, not stupidity, but ignorance. We don't even recognize the situation. We don't even realize, hey, this is a, a, a situation where I should probably consider what I'm thinking or doing or saying here. And so we just stumble into it. But sometimes it is out of pride. Sometimes that it, is, it is out of that, that force of individuality that is so prominent in American culture. I can do it. Sometimes we do it because we have built up this reality within our culture, both in, inside and outside the church, that um, we gotta be tough. We've, we've praised people with a stiff upper lip who don't show weakness. And so with that, we got a lot of people trying to lift boxes they were never meant to lift. Not literally, maybe so, but spiritually, emotionally, and so we, we walk around, all of us at some level, we walk around carrying things that we were never meant to carry alone. With the reality that the longer we carry it, the more we slowly, stubbornly begin to realize, hey, this is gonna crush me. This is too heavy. You know, God has given us wisdom. James says, in the book of James, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and he'll grant it. But even more than that, in 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at this verse specifically later, but 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is, in fact, our wisdom from God. He is wisdom. And so if you believed upon Christ, if you've placed your faith in him as the one true sacrifice and atonement for sin, the Lord of all creation, and surrendered to him, that means that the very source of wisdom from God himself dwells within you. That we have the wisdom of Christ in us, dwelling within us, empowering us, teaching us in all ways of wisdom. So in some, in some ways, when we reject wisdom, when God slaps a wisdom sticker on our forehead and we rip it off, we're not just rejecting wisdom from peers or from conventional wisdom out there. In some sense, we're, we're rejecting the very source of wisdom himself, Jesus. And this is what Paul was talking about when he was talking about the world in 1 Corinthians as well. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, where he says, the foolish things of the world what, what the world says is foolish is actually wisdom. And what the world says is wise is actually foolishness. And so we see that not just in the New Testament, we see it even all the way back in Exodus. Where we'll pick up this morning is in Exodus chapter 18. We, uh, before last week, Bob and Caleb had led us through Exodus 17. And so as we approach Exodus 18, it's just a little bit of a caveat of a story that's going on with Moses and his family that then bleeds over into someone in Moses' family giving him some wisdom that he desperately needed. And then we'll move in next week into chapter 19. Here's the outline of Exodus 18. Here's kind of the, where we're headed this morning, the three main 
points. First, we're going to see family transformation take place. That's language that we use here at the church. You're not going to see those two words in the text, but we talk about in our vision statement, we say that we long to see individuals, families, greater Atlanta and the world come into a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. And so a big part of what we long to see God do here is transform our families. And we're going to see that. We're going to see an aspect of that in the text in the first 12 verses. Then we're going to see a member of Moses' family give him some incredibly helpful, much-needed, out-of-the-blue exhortation, wise exhortation. And then, lastly, but very briefly at the end, we will see the humble application of that wisdom. The humble application of that wisdom. Here's what we're picking up in chapter 18. As you know, very brief recap, Exodus Uh, Moses has led the Israelites in the Exodus, the Exodus out of Egypt. And as he's led them out, he's led them out through the miraculous plagues of God. He's led them through the the miracle of of the parting of the Red Sea, and he's led them into the wilderness. And where we're picking up in chapter 18 is they are now in the wilderness, but they are finally encamped around what's called in the text, the mountain of God. Now we know that mountain of God to be Mount Sinai. Sometimes in the Bible, it's called Mount Horeb, but that's where they are, and they're camped around the base of this mountain. In a couple of chapters, we're going to see the reason that it's called the mountain of God is because that's where God is going to meet Moses at the top of Mount Sinai and give him the law, give him the Ten Commandments. Moses will be with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights on the top of that mountain. But for right now, they're camped there. Now, something that's interesting that you realize here in chapter 18 that we haven't been told yet is that Moses' Moses wife, Zipporah, and their two sons are not with him. At some point along the journey, Zipporah and his two sons went to live with his father-in-law, Jethro, back in Midian. And we go, when did that happen? And there's debate. We don't know. There's debate. Scholars and theologians, they debate over when exactly did this take place? Many would argue that it took place after this really bizarre, mysterious account that we see and read very briefly. It's only a few verses in Exodus chapter four. So God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he's called Moses to be his man, the very vessel through which he's going to lead his people enslaved in Egypt, out of Egypt and into ultimately the promised land. Now it's after he's called Moses, that he's traveling to Egypt and Zipporah is with him. And we get this odd account in Exodus four where God suddenly says, I'm gonna kill Moses. And it's one of those where you're reading along and all of a sudden you just kind of do that dog turn your head thing like, what? Everything seemed to be fine. He's your man. I mean, you've called him very clearly to be the one you use to deliver your people. And then along the journey from Midian to Egypt, you're going to just kill him? What, what in the world? And then God says, well, I'm going to kill him because his son is not circumcised. It's interesting that we did baptism this morning. But he had not given the, given the sign of the covenant to his son. So we start realizing, wow, God really cares about this. But then in another bizarre twist... Zipporah is the one who quickly intervenes and very swiftly circumcises their son. And then she turns to Moses, and it doesn't appear to be just a statement. She's yelling at her husband, and she says to him, you are a bridegroom of blood. 
Sounds like an incredibly healthy marriage at this point. And so many scholars, many theologians would say at this point, Zipporah had just had enough. And she said, I'm taking the boys and I'm going back to live with my father in Midian. You can do this rescue mission without me. Now others, John Calvin probably being the most prominent one, the great, one of the great reformers in the, uh, in the 16th century, he, in the 15th and 16th century, he said, that he actually thinks that Zipporah and the boys continued with Moses through the Exodus back into the wilderness. And once they crossed the Red Sea back into the wilderness, that's when they went to go back uh, to Jethro. Whatever the case, the bottom line is this. Where we pick up in chapter 18 is that Zipporah and the boys have not been with Moses. And Jethro sends word down to Moses and he says, I'm coming and I'm bringing Zipporah and your sons with me. And so Moses gets excited that he's going to see his family again. Now, when they show up, Moses and Jethro have a pretty interesting conversation. Watch what happens. Pick up in verse 8. In verse 8, it says this. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of Egyptians. Now, I'll just give you my opinion. John Calvin, you might think as Presbyterians, we can't disagree with him. But I don't agree with Calvin's assessment. Here's why. Calvin thought that Zipporah and the boys stayed with them through the journey and once they were back into the wilderness after being uh, delivered from slavery. I I just simply, in my small mind, think, I don't know that that's the case because Jethro seems totally surprised at what happened. When Moses gives him the story, this is what all God did, Jethro doesn't seem to know. If Zipporah had gone back and stayed with him and not gone back until they had seen all the works of God, then Jethro would have been updated by her. I can get lost in the nuances. It's fun for me. But here's the point. Jethro's excited. Moses shares with him, you've got to listen to all that the Lord has done. Look at verse 10. This is what Jethro says. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Notice verse 11, key verse. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Did you pick up on what happened here? Jethro made a pretty phenomenal declaration. Moses tells him all that God has done in delivering and all the miracles and all the, all the ways in which God has delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And, and Jethro rejoices. And he says in verse 11, now I know, now I know that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now I know that he is the one true God over and above all other gods. Now, what we don't know is this. Was, was Jethro, up until this point, a polytheistic worshiper? Did he worship a lot of different gods? Pagan gods, perhaps, maybe. 
Uh, and this was his declaration into monotheism to say there is only one true God and now I know who he is? Or was it that he was already monotheistic, but it was just more of this general belief that there is a God and maybe it's the God of Israel, I don't know, but there's one out there somewhere. And this is the moment where he realizes it's the God of Israel. It's Yahweh. Regardless of whether he's coming out of polytheism or out of a, just, a, just a very generic monotheistic mindset, he's now believing and declaring that belief that this is the one true God. And he's saying in comparison specifically to the Egyptian gods. Because I don't know if you caught it, but he said, because they, and the they there is the Egyptian gods. They have dealt arrogantly with the people. And they were put to shame. Because the one true God was the victor. But it doesn't just end with, uh, with Jethro proclaiming and saying, yes, this is the one true God. It's immediately followed up, immediately followed up with worship. Now, this is interesting because Jethro was a priest, but he was a pagan priest, not, a, not an Israelite priest, He's not a Levite, he's not of the line of Aaron. But he was a priest. He was used to making sacrifices. But the text indicates here that what, what he did at this point is he brought a sacrifice. He didn't make a sacrifice. In other words, it wasn't him being the mediator. He suddenly is realizing, for this God, there has to be bloodshed in my place. And so I'm not going to be the one to make the sacrifice. I'm going to bring it to the priest that they would intercede for me. Now, I know this is getting a little bit deep, but think about that. There's a recognition here to greater high priest who is to come, a, a greater reality that there's one that's going to come who's going to shed his blood, and we cannot make intercession for ourselves. He must be the intercessor, and it's not just someone causing uh, bloodshed so that there's forgiveness of sins so that we can be a worshiper of God. It's that he will offer his very own bloodshed as the Lamb of God. But Jethro is starting to connect the dots. And the inclination, the, instinct, uh, the, the instinctive response of his heart is to worship. So I'm going to bring sacrifice to this God and worship him. And then, if that weren't enough, they just throw a big old party. They celebrate. They celebrate what Jethro has declared. And so Aaron, who was probably already there, he was probably the priest who Jethro brought the sacrifice to. Aaron was there and they called all the elders of Israel. That's a big deal. Moses calls all the elders and says, we gotta celebrate the declaration of faith that has just happened with my father-in-law. Do you see it? Family transformation. But how did it come about? It came about because Moses told the wondrous works of God to his unbelieving father-in-law. So here's what I want you to consider this morning. Think about this. There is great power, great power, when we tell of the great works of God to those who don't believe. There is great power when we tell of the great works of God to those who don't believe. And it starts with our family. When I prayed earlier for the families who had brought their little ones to be baptized, I prayed very purposefully, God, would you strengthen them, encourage them, help them to see that they are the primary disciple makers of their children. 
Now, of course, here at the church, the bloodline, if you will, the backbone of what we do, the very core DNA of what we offer is discipleship. And so it's a big deal to us, but it's not such a big deal as to say this, that we want you to fully outsource discipleship to us. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, your responsibility is that you are the primary disciple maker of your kids and we come along and support that. Now, when we begin to declare and speak of the wondrous works of God in the presence of non-believers, hopefully a part of that is we learn how to defend our faith. It's important. Apologetics is important. That we know how to explain why we believe what we believe. And we, we understand all the various reasons and logic as to why we would be so quote unquote foolish to believe in this God and in this Savior. And so that's important. But here's the reality. Even if we are highly trained in apologetics, there's always going to be this, this truth out there or this reality out there that someone is always going to have something to argue back with. Okay, I hear you, but what about this? Okay, I hear you, but what about this? Okay, I hear you, but what about this? And even though we're apologetically defending our faith, there's always, it's always met with opposition. But here's the one thing, the one thing that people can't argue with you about. It's the power of the work of God in your own life. The power of your own testimony. The power of what you say, look, you can argue with me all you want, and I get it, I understand it. I understand why you would argue that point. Now, here's my reason and my logic for this. But at the end of the day, uh, what you can't tell me, what you can't argue with me about is you cannot say God did not do that in your life. God has not changed your heart because I have met the living God and I would argue otherwise. And that is my truth. It's not my truth. It's the truth. The power of testimony, the power of proclaiming the work of God to those who don't believe. Are we doing that? Are you seeking to do that? And is it starting in your home? To unashamedly, unreservedly proclaim the wondrous works of God. Watch what happens next. After this family transformation happens, Jethro steps into a space that quite honestly probably wasn't any of his business. Look at verse 13. The next day, Moses set to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. This is Jethro saying, look, I'm going to give you advice, and don't, but don't do it unless God is with you in affirming what I'm saying. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. 
and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Jethro steps in with some wise exhortation. And I'm going to guess that this came out of the blue for Moses. He was not expecting this. All of a sudden, Jethro's there, and then he has this pretty incredible transformative experience, and then he starts speaking into Moses' life. Pretty, pretty bold of Jethro. Now, what seemed reasonable to Moses was very quickly seen as very unreasonable and not good by Jethro. He watched what Moses was doing on a daily basis, and he said straight up, this is not good. But he didn't just see that it wasn't good. He saw the danger in it. He said, this is too heavy for you. This is going to crush you. You will not last as a leader. You will not last as a follower of Yahweh if you keep carrying this load. But he didn't just see that it wasn't good. He didn't just see that it was dangerous. He also saw the solution. And he said to him, here's what you need to do. You need to find able men who fear God, which is an Old Testament term for love him in every way, walk with him, and are reverent to him, who are trustworthy and who hate a bribe, meaning they, they are men of integrity. They are dependable in every way. And here's what you need to do. Once you find those men, entrust them. Entrust a lot to them. Let them carry this burden with you. Moses, you need to be freed up. You need to be freed up what you can do at the highest level of leading Israel. And you need to displace this burden to those who God has called to carry it with you. Galatians 6, the apostle Paul picks up on this on verse 2 and is, as he's instructing the church. He's, he's teaching the very same principle. He says, look, we have, to, we have to carry each other's burdens. We have to. It's the way of the kingdom of God. And then as they begin to establish the church more and more, you see in 1 Timothy 3 and you see in Titus 1, more of a structure given to the church to say, look, this has got to be pluralistic leadership. There has to be a system here where it's just not you, Timothy, carrying this. It's not just you, Titus, carrying this. There needs to be elders and there needs to be accountability and there needs to be shared responsibility. And that's why I love the way that we're set up here, right? Like the, the, all the responsibility is, uh, is far from on me. I report to nine elders who hold me accountable, who help me uh, stay in the lane that I need to stay on to leave it, lead at a high level and then we have an executive leadership team that shares the burden of responsibility of leading the staff in the church. And then we have 300 officers, elders and deacons who shepherd and serve. And there's just a, a vast array of burden carrying going on here. Because I'll tell you, if all of this was on me, I'd have quit a year and a half ago. I'd have burned out. It wouldn't, it, there's no way. 
Something that's interesting in this text is where the wisdom came from. Listen to what this one commentator says. He says, the great Jehovah did not disdain to permit his prophet to be taught by the wisdom and intelligence of a good man, though he was not of the commonwealth of Israel. It is not a little remarkable that the very first rudiments of the Jewish polity were thus suggested by a stranger and a Midianite. Now, this doesn't mean that we take that to the nth degree and we say, okay, I'm just always gonna assume that God's gonna speak to me from places I don't expect and from non-believers and outside the church and whatnot. That's not it, but it's just simply saying, are we seeking the Lord in such a way that we're open to his wisdom being spoken into us through those around us, even if it's, if it's from unexpected people? Even if it's from unexpected sources? Because remember, what's our bent? Our bent, our natural disposition is to say, I got it and I'm wise, leave me alone. But who, who are the Jethro's in your life? Who do you have in your life who will speak hard truth to you, even if you have every reason to say, you don't have the right to speak into that. You, you ever thought about that? Moses had every right to say, Jethro, come on, man. Like, you just showed up. You have not been with us. I don't know if you know this or not, but things have been going okay with me. I mean, like, I just told you what all God did through me. You remember that part? Parting the Red Sea, plagues. Hit a rock, water came out, manna from heaven. Yeah, he did, he did all that through me. I think we got it. Jethro, back off, father-in-law. Right, he could have said that. But he didn't. There was a humble application. There was a humble, a humility. It took great humility for Moses to say, yeah, you're right. I'm gonna crash soon. I'm gonna break soon. This weight is going to kill me. And Moses and all the elders and Aaron, they must have been so close to it that they couldn't see it, right? What, what seemed reasonable to them, it just took one quick glance from outside eyes to go, what are you doing? It's not good. It's too heavy for you. What are you carrying right now that's so heavy that if you don't let others carry the burden with you, you're going to break? You're going to crash and burn. It is going to kill you. What is it that you're carrying right now? For some, it's, it's dark stuff. It's a, it's a hidden addiction. You haven't told anybody about it. You've hit it very well, but it is crushing you. And you're sensing right now in this very moment, the Holy Spirit is speaking deep into your heart saying, it is time to talk about that, to let people in, to invite Jethro's into your life because that's wisdom. And in all the ways the slithery serpent is gonna convince you that wisdom is keeping it hidden, it's not. Wisdom is inviting people in. Wisdom is saying, look, I got something going on here that people need to know about. And if I don't tell someone, it's gonna, it's gonna crush me. Maybe it's, you've been carrying around the burden of a, of a really unhealthy, broken marriage for a long time. And you're at your wit's end, and maybe you're not even at your wit's end, but you're starting to realize there's got to be others to carry this burden. We need Jethro's in our life to speak in. We need the wisdom of God through the community of God's people to speak in. We're desperately in need. This is too heavy for us. Other, other, it may not be something that dark necessarily or that heavy, but it may just be, man, I'm just trying to do too much. Between work and life and home and 
community service and ball games and kids' activities and this and this. I'm just, I am just about to fall apart. And I need someone to come and carry this burden with me. I need wisdom. I need a Jethro. And oh God, would you make me, this is the prayer, would you make me humble enough to see it and to invite it? And would you bring it into my life? Again, our disposition is to see the wisdom stickers that say team lift and to say, I got this. And we don't. We don't. May we have the humility of Moses. Now I told you, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. It is because of him that you are in Christ. Listen to what it says about Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So Jesus himself is our wisdom. And so I want you to connect the dots on this. When you reject wisdom from the body of Christ, you're rejecting the source of wisdom himself, who is Christ. When you reject wisdom from the body of Christ, you're rejecting the source of wisdom himself, who is Christ. Because he is the one who was the ultimate burden carrier, was he not? He was the one who said the essence of Christianity is centered in giving up so that others may have a lighter burden. He's the one who said, I am the only one. I am the only one who is not going to do the team lift. I'm going to carry this burden of the sin of the world upon my shoulders, and I'm going to take the weight of it and let it crush me so that you will not be crushed and so that you will have a body of believers among you who will carry the burden of life along with you and run to me, the ultimate burden carrier. And then he says this, go and live like I lived. If you wanna follow me, pick up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me. In other words, every single day is a death to my pride to say I can lift it. And to say, would you help? Would you come in? Would you carry my burdens and I'll carry yours? And that's what we call the body of Christ. As we run to the true, final burden carrier, Jesus himself. Let me pray. Father, would we be so humble? By your spirit within us, would we be so humble to respond to the areas in our lives where you're, where you're slapping wisdom stickers in our face? That we would respond like Moses. We'd be so humble to say, yes, yes, I need that. And mostly, oh Jesus, I need you. Thank you for carrying all of our burdens to the cross. And thank you for giving us each other to carry each other's burdens. Forgive us when we don't do that well. And lead us, oh good shepherd, to start doing it well right now. From this day forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. 
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.